Welcome to Succession Stories. I'm Lori Barkman. As an exit value planning and M&A advisor, I call myself the business transition Sherpa. This podcast guides entrepreneurs from transition to transaction, from building value in your business to letting go. What do I do when I'm not hosting a podcast? I work with owners to maximize business value with my firm, small.big. And as a certified mergers and acquisitions advisor with Stony Hill, I guide you through the complex process of selling your company. Tune into Succession Stories for weekly insights to reward your hard work and avoid succession regrets. Hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and sign up for our newsletter at successionstories.com. Here's to your success. When selling your business, it's the net number that counts. Today's Succession Stories episode focuses on tax strategies to consider when selling a business. For this conversation, I spoke with two colleagues from Wessel & Company, a regional tax and accounting firm in Pennsylvania. Joel Valentine, President and CEO, and Christopher Weir, Partner, provide corporate tax, business valuations, mergers and acquisitions, and ESOP advisory services. We talked about minimizing the tax burden of selling a business, as well as maximizing the overall value by making sure your company is ready for sale every single day. We also discussed ESOP transactions and how employee stock ownership plans can be a valuable succession planning tool with incredible tax benefits. For anyone thinking about selling in the future, the advice is to treat your business like it's for sale every day. In a transaction, we wanna maximize the top number and also maximize after-tax proceeds. It's the net number that counts. Enjoy this Succession Stories episode about tax strategies to consider when selling a business with Joel Valentine and Christopher Weir from Wessel & Company. Is this the year to sell your company? Don't leave your exit to chance. Stony Hill Advisors works with entrepreneurs like you to get ready for what may be the biggest transaction of your life. Learn what your business is worth by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. Joel, Chris, welcome to Succession Stories. I am so glad you're with me today because you are experts in helping business owners with exits, but also before an exit from a tax advisory and all kinds of smart people on your team. I know we're going to have a great conversation and welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here, Lori. Lori. So why don't we start with Joel. Joel, talk about who Wessel helps, how you do that. And then we'll get into a little bit more about your story afterwards. Great. Yes. Thank you. Wessel and Company, we were founded in 1958. So we've been around for a long time. We have niches in various areas from government nonprofit to commercial entities and, and throughout Western Pennsylvania. But a, an area that Chris and I have really been really focused in on is business valuations and business transition services from helping companies plan for an ultimate transition and make sure they are in the best spot to maximize value and, and lower their taxes. That's been a a spot that we've been very focused in and seen a lot of transactions over the last five years or so. So you're the president and CEO of the firm. When you joined the firm, that was not your role, right? You grew with the firm over time. And I think there was a succession story there. Why don't you tell me about that? Yeah, well, I started first helping clients. A close client I had was going through some succession issues and we 
help them through that. But then um, also uh, when I became a partner, I uh, uh, was fortunate enough to be at the right place at the right time and became a partner in the firm at a, about 30 years old and realized that one of the things that the firm had to do was plan for their ultimate succession. So that was something that I um, was a part of and and started planning for really from day one of being a partner. You know, we worked on it for probably four or five years softly, and then another three or four years more intensely until we got to a point where everyone was comfortable with the ultimate plan. Took five years. That's that's a good amount of time. You really thought it through. And ultimately, as a shareholder, you probably saw things a little bit, I think, in a different light for your clients, I'm guessing, because you went through it yourself. Yeah, it, it definitely does. Give perspective. I don't think so much from an economic standpoint, but the emotional aspects that come along with it is what really helped create perspective when when clients are dealing with those issues because we were able to see both what the founding partners were going through and and what changes were going to have to occur in their lifestyle and also what the new regime, if you will, was going to have to plan for and take on and the responsibilities they were going to have to be um, ready to inherit both financially and just work-wise as well. Absolutely. So let's talk a bit about pitfalls to avoid when a business owner is thinking about transitioning their company. And hopefully this is done, as you said, five years or longer until the day that they're quote unquote ready. This is not going to happen overnight. So presuming we have some time to work on these challenges, I thought it would be great, Chris, maybe you can kick it off here for us. In your experience working with privately held companies, you know, what's worked well, what's not worked so well when it comes to business transition? Yeah, thanks, Laurie. Happy to join you on the podcast. When I think about that question, first and foremost, it's that upfront planning. It's, it's not something that you could just turn a light switch and say that I want to sell my business within the next six months. That's, that's likely not going to happen. It is a process. In the case of our firm, it was a longer process. It's different for everyone, obviously, but having that runway where you can build your business, where you can ensure that your financial house is in order, so to speak. Joel always has a, a great metaphor when it comes to how a business looks to an outside buyer, to a number of prospective buyers. You know, sometimes, and Joel, I'm sure you know what metaphor I'm talking about. <laughs> when you walk into like an Apple store, everything's in its right place. Everything looks great. Everything's pristine. And that's how we hope our clients look and are perceived by outside buyers. I think that's so important. And just that that trust factor is built whenever a buyer steps in and, and asks for audited or reviewed financial statements pre prepared by a public accounting firm, financial statements that reconcile, tax returns that are done appropriately, ensuring that all of those due diligence aspects are, are met and dealt with ahead of time really helps a, a transition go very smoothly. And, and really, I think, maximizes value in a way. I'm more inclined to pay a premium price at an Apple store that is very well presented as opposed to a, a corner wireless phone store. And you know, just to go along with that metaphor and take that a little bit further. So I do think that when it comes to ensuring that all of those due diligence items are met and ensures a smooth, quick, quicker process too in going through that ultimate transition. I like the analogy of going into the house and everything's in order versus it's a mess or there's a smell, right? We've all sort right. of seen that. And <laughs> they're not going to get asking on that house. 
Let's talk a little bit about the mechanics of this. What are reviewed financials? What are what does that mean versus audited financials? Sure. So oftentimes privately held companies will be required by a lender or other stakeholders to receive or obtain what are called audited financial statements, meaning an independent public accounting firm like Wessel, like others, will issue an opinion that there are no material modifications or material misstatements in the financial statements themselves. Those financial statements are follow what's what's typically known as generally accepted accounting principles so that a buyer can look at a certain company's financial statements and compare that company's financial performance and liquidity measures and balance sheet to peers in the industry or other companies, even publicly traded ones. So it ensures that consistent basis with which you know, buyers evaluate target companies. A reviewed set of financial statements our reviews are also provided by certified public accounting firms. However, a review provides what's known as limited assurance that there are no material modifications. So it's a lower standard of assurance relative to an audit. Of course, there are cost considerations and, and need as well. But generally speaking, there are different levels of service. What we find is that there are buyers, whether they're private equity firms or family offices or strategic buyers, who will require a certain level of financial statements and anticipating what those requirements are is always tough. It's, you know, we've, we've worked with clients that had tax returns prepared each year and they were able to get through the process, but it does take a little bit more time to help bridge that understanding with a buyer that, you know, we don't have audited financial statements, although we do have these, um, whether they're reviews or tax returns, and here's the, all the underlying support. And by the way, we also have a, a sell side quality of earnings study that you know, also helps support the underlying financial statements. All of these things go together in helping present a company in the best light possible. Can you give a sense of what the characteristics are of a business that would do reviewed financials versus audited? Is it typical for certain industries or size revenue-wise or employee base, something like that? I could take that. Usually the requirements are triggered by their lender in most cases for small private companies. So if they have a certain amount of debt, it's more common to see an audited financial statement, like say in a manufacturing company, because they're likely going to have to finance their equipment and they have inventory that they likely have a line of credit on. So those are the types of entities that we're likely to find audited statements than, say, a professional service firm or a doctor's office or something like that, because there's just not a lot there. They usually don't have a lot of debt that drive that audited financial statement. So it, it's really, in most cases, for private businesses, kind of that middle market that we work in, it's driven by their lender. Okay. Yeah. A lot of the companies that I work with, you mentioned, Chris, that you get tax returns. And that's that's typically what we are seeing is QuickBooks, tax returns, not reviewed financials, not audited financials. Joel, you know, as a follow-up to what you're saying, a lot of times if you're doing a business valuation, you might be doing an analysis and taking a look at what some of those addbacks are. Right. Maybe you could explain the difference of maybe what we call a set of financials that are quote unquote tax based, where right. the owner is looking to minimize their annual tax obligation versus gap financials. 
Yeah, and that that all fits together. Of course, the audited statements that Chris referred to are likely going to be a gap financial statement. But even if you don't have that audit requirement and and you're a smaller business and you want to just work off internally prepared statements, I think it's important to make sure that you have either an experienced accountant on staff or someone from the outside that has experience in accounting, making sure that your internal books, maybe it's not a gap financial statement with full footnote disclosure, but that everything's at least recorded consistently year to year in the same place. You're capitalizing the certain expenses, then expensing others and things like that. But to your point on the normalization adjustments, you know, oftentimes small businesses are running things through a buyer, um, their benefits for the owner, owner perks. It could be in the form of a salary over and above of what a replacement person might be to replace the time that he, he or she is working in the business. It could be them running through some dues, golf course dues, things like that. Um, all business expenses that at times are, are valid business expenses, but maybe not 100% necessary to generate that earnings. And also at times, you know, these small business owners are taking advantage. Maybe there's a personal automobile or something like that. They're obviously now have a different motivation where they were previously motivated to lower net income and lower taxable income. Now, all of a sudden, they're motivated to increase taxable income or not necessarily taxable income, but at least adjusted EBITDA or adjusted net profit. So we oftentimes caution folks, particularly those who want to sell. I mean, obviously, you, you have the IRS concern there. It, it, you don't want to be too aggressive. But also, just overall, you can't sort of have your cake and eat it too. If you, you, if you have a plan sell down the road, you just want to make sure you're really running your financial statements in a consistent manner that a buyer can get comfortable with. If they see a lot of personal things going through there over and above the norm, it's going to get harder to get them comfortable with your reporting practices. Yeah, 100%. Who is your most important customer? The person who buys your business. Stony Hill Advisors works with owners to maximize the value when you're ready to sell. Get started today with a business valuation by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. So when it comes to exit strategy, a lot of people talk about this big number. You know, what am I going to sell my company for? I talk about it, of course, on this show. People need to understand what their financial needs are, project into the future, and then work backwards and try to see if there's a gap. You know, what's your business worth today? And what's your big number? What do you want to sell for? And everything in between. We haven't focused enough on this show about the net number. And I thought it'd be a great opportunity to have that conversation with both of you. So if we talk about the sell price, we want to maximize value. Absolutely, 100%. I do that with clients and I'm passionate about that as well. But the question to you both is really about this net number. And what are some tax strategies to consider when selling a business? Again, if we have the luxury of time being on our side, we're being proactive, what are some things that business owners should start thinking about? And, and Chris, why don't we start with you? Sure. No, it's a great question. Yeah, we always talk about with clients is the devil's in the details when it comes to offers and letters of intent that they're, that they're getting for their business. So, um, you know, a, a $20 million deal price paid in cash up front means a lot, uh, means something, you know, the, the present value of that is obviously much greater than that same deal price paid 
you know, in installments over a five-year period of time in the form of a seller note. Um, so the transaction structure is, it really impacts those after-tax proceeds that you had mentioned, whether it's a timing consideration uh, where not all the proceeds are to be received up front. I'm going to take out a note as a seller. And, um, you know, in doing so, if I am taking out a note and I'm going to be paid over time, I obviously have time value of money uh, considerations to deal with. I also have risk um, that I'm going to ultimately be paid. So I should be compensated appropriately for that note in the form of a higher interest rate um, over and above, certainly prime. Um, you know, I, I think whenever we look at seller note interest rates, I think it's reasonable to expect seven, eight, nine percent interest, at least on some of those seller notes because of the risk that sellers would be taking on. So, you know, in terms of structure and, and, the, and the, the mechanism for payment, I think that really impacts, you know, that net number. Um, you know, certainly on a year-to-year -year basis and also on a present value basis. And when we think about, you know, that's cash. It, when we think about after-tax proceeds from the sale of a business, that means a lot of different things. Um, depending on the nature of how that transaction is structured, uh, the purchase agreement, whether it's a purchase of, uh, you know, a, a membership interest or stock um, versus a, a purchase of of assets. Um, typically, you know, there are motivations by buyers to purchase assets because they're able to um, achieve a stepped up basis in those assets and depreciate those assets quickly, therefore yielding higher tax savings and deductions in those first few years of ownership. Um, whereas a seller doesn't necessarily want to sell assets because of certain tax implications. And so they're motivated to um, you know, wish to sell stock to achieve capital gain treatment on the sale. So um, there, when we think about after, you know, after tax proceeds, that can mean um, that could have a very real implication. And that difference between the transaction structure of an asset sale versus a stock sale or, you know, an equity purchase sale could be very meaningful. And what we encourage um, our clients when we're advising through a process, or you know, certainly we work with investment um, bankers who um, you know help with this process and advise, um, is determining or demanding or requiring anyway a buyer to make whole a seller for those adverse tax implications, and we find that buyers are very willing to negotiate those aspects of the agreement. Um, so it allows our client to be made whole, regardless of transaction structure, um, on the after-tax proceeds that they initially, um, you know, had desired. So I think deal structure really um, has a great impact. And, and you know, to your point, uh, deal structure can mean a lot of different things depending on how that transaction is ultimately structured. Yeah, for sure. And and I like how you broke down the, some of the difference there. You mentioned a seller note. People might not know exactly what that means. Can you just explain that a little more deeply? Sure. Yeah. Oftentimes, you know, a buyer when they're looking to to purchase a business, the the desire for a buyer uh, certainly is to uh, you know fund the deal with as much senior debt as possible, with a large bank, a large financial institution, um, at the lowest possible rate. And oftentimes banks are 
um, banks may not be willing to lend into um, a hundred percent finance deal. So to you know fully fund the transaction, they the the buyers may um, have a requirement that the seller help fund a portion of the purchase price. If I'm selling a business for ten million dollars and I'm able to get a bank a bank note for five, and you know I'm a buyer, I have two million dollars of cash that I'm going to put in. I have $3 million to make up in that funding. And so I may ask the seller to take out a note for $3 million that I will, I will pay as a buyer. I'll pay that over time to the seller. So that seller has then credit risk, has risk, you know, that they may not be paid ultimately. So sellers certainly taking on, on risk could be rewarding uh, as well, because oftentimes those seller note interest rates are, are rather high. Just to add on to that, I think sometimes um, when we talk about seller financing with sellers, they think they're going to have to come up with that cash, and and they don't. They're able to take a note instead of getting cash up front. So it's not like out of pocket to them. It's just money they're going to get in the future. And um, at times, it it really helps bridge the gap to get a deal closed. And it can also be used as a form of price preservation, if you will, because if you leave that note inside, you likely sometimes aren't going to get the price that you want. So that structure really sometimes help you get the price you want because otherwise there may not be enough cash flow or um, collateral to fund at the level that you want for your business. Gotcha. So same question to you, Joel, about minimizing the the post-transaction tax obligation. What are some other strategies that might be employed? Yeah, Chris talked about the stock versus asset sale, but I, I think one of the big things also to consider up front is um, long-term planning. If if the sale price is if the if some of the proceeds are eventually going to go to your children, um, you may want to think about gifting some shares to them beforehand. Possibly get them into a lower tax bracket when the sale actually occurs. Um, the other big one is just the entity selection as well. Um, you, you may want to. If you're a C corp, you may want to look at making an S election to avoid double taxation on an ultimate sale. Um, and and really, I think you know at the end of the day, it's just like if if it's a tr- something that you have at some point in your future, you want to start kicking that can, uh, you know, turning it over a little bit and and talking through with your advisors uh, to make sure things are set up early on rather than waiting until right before the sale occurs to to try to make some of those elections. One of the things that has just recently came into play with a client I'm working on is if you are a C corporation and you sell, um, you could be subject and you have to sell assets, you could be subject to double taxation. But if you make an election to become an S corporation, um, that would go away, the double taxation component. But the IRS has put into play what's called a building gains tax. So if you make that election from a C to an S, you have to wait at least five years before that building gains tax goes away to avoid the double taxation. So some of those things are um, items that you want to address early on so you don't uh, fall into, uh, you know, uh, uh, trouble or not trouble, but a challenge when you're um, ready to to ultimately sell the business. Yeah, nobody likes surprises. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so if you only had the, the knowledge ahead of time to maybe make that change from a C to an S, that could make a big difference. I guess a related topic, 
we're talking about tax, right? And so I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up ESOPs. I have covered this topic on a couple of other Succession Stories episodes, and I thought we could just spend a minute or two on it. And Chris, why don't we come back to you? What's an ESOP? In your experience, who is a fit, who's not, and maybe some reasons why? Yeah, thanks, Laurie. Uh, ESOPs are, it's an exciting tool for succession and one that we present to all of our clients. Um, and some some of our clients have gone through ESOP transactions where, um, you know, which has been a real success, a real success story for them. So an ESOP um, is an employee stock ownership plan. It's a, an employee stock ownership plan is very similar to a traditional def- 401k plan. The only difference is the ESOP um, doesn't own mutual funds and marketable securities. It owns stock in a company, in a privately held company in this case, um, what we're talking about. So the ESOP, again, is a qualified plan, invests primarily in the employer stock. And in an ESOP transaction, what happens is, um, you know, if I'm a seller and I'm looking to, to sell my business to a third party, um, you know, a private equity firm or, um, you know, a, an industry peer, I, I may also turn to this qualified plan, this ESOP trust as a potential buyer of my business. And the ESOP trust um, is, could be set up and then pay a seller fair market value for the stock um, that they choose to sell. And so, um, you know, what that does for a seller is it allows them to achieve fair market value for the stock. That fair market value is determined by an independent appraisal and signed off by a trustee. But, you know, in connection with that, um, you know, transaction, the following the transaction, the, the ESOP itself is the stockholder. Um, the ESOP trust actually holds the stock. And over time, then following the transaction, those ESOP shares, that ESOP value um, that's owned by this trust is allocated to the employees um, over, you know, on a periodic basis um, for a certain designated period of time following the transaction. So what you're essentially doing is over time, your employees, those that have helped, you know, a business owner build a business are ultimately getting rewarded as, um, you know, in, in theory, stockholders or, um, you know, owners of, you know, these participation interests in the company. Uh, so it's a really unique way to, um, you know, form a legacy as a business owner and um, you know, transition that business to uh, the, the employees, the management that have gotten, you know, me to this point and um, still achieve fair market value for my shares. Um, the unique aspect of ESOPs, uh, you know, and there are, there are a lot of them, but um, the one consideration that a lot of business owners have as it relates to ESOPs is the ability to monetize a portion of their stock initially in an initial ESOP transaction. Perhaps sell 30 or 40% of the stock uh, to an ESOP and then over time, perhaps even transition to 100% ESOP ownership through a secondary sale down the road. So um, that that's an overview of what an ESOP is and, and how it's used um, you know, as a succession tool. 
uh, for business owners looking to monetize their their interests. In some cases, take some chips off the table um, in preparation for a future uh, sale as well. And the tax benefit is significant, right? It is. Yeah, um, it's it's unbelievable the tax benefits that are afforded to ESOP-owned companies. Uh, we have uh, several ESOP-owned companies where the ESOP owns um, all or a portion of the company. And for S-corporations that are owned by an ESOP, to the extent the stock is owned by an ESOP, that portion of taxable income is not subject to any tax for federal or state purposes. Um, if I'm a 100% ESOP-owned S-corporation, I don't pay any tax um, as a as a 100% ESOP-owned company. When we think about what happens in the case of an ESOP, the ESOP is the shareholder. They um, receive their pro rata share of, of income, whether that's 100% interest or 100% of all the income flows to the ESOP. The ESOP gets a K-1 as a tax-exempt entity. The ESOP just you know simply throws that K-1 away. They don't have to deal with it. Um, so the tax, the tax implications post ESOP are tremendous. And uh, Joel, I don't know if you want to speak about the, you know, the the nature of the ESOP transactions and how that helps save tax upfront as well. Yeah, just to give like a real world example, you take a, a company that was maybe a ten million dollar enterprise value company. Um, they sell 40% for $4 million and the buyers now, or the seller now has the, the $4 million for their 40% in their pocket. The ESOP over the next five to seven years is gonna pay um, the loan back that was hopefully borrowed from the bank so that the sellers could get that funding up front. And oftentimes, and actually more times than not, as we've seen it, the, um, this tax savings over that payment of the loan period, the five to seven years that that loan is going to be paid off, more than covers the payment on the loan. So, you know, the, the sellers are able to get a liquidity event, get the cash out of the company, not give up the control of the company, and still have the same cash flow that they had prior to the transaction. So it's a win-win for all. And then really, as we've seen them happen, usually you see a great increase in that enterprise value. So that company that was then worth 10 million for 100% is now worth, the employees are motivated, they're working harder, um, the company's growing, you're getting some customer diversity in there. All those things to add value oftentimes come along with it. And the company that was worth 10 million is now 10 years down the road worth 20 million. So now that initial owner could sell the remaining 60% um, for, you know, $12 million, um, greater than the initial 10 million he was going to get for a hundred percent. Plus he already got the $4 million from the first, uh, liquidity event. So it can be a win-win for all. And there's just tax savings all along the way, which, um, really works out nicely. Not only the tax savings, but coupled that with a motivated workforce to help increase the value of the company. Um, it, it can really, um, pay dividends. Yeah, absolutely. And a ballpark percentage, I know it's not an exact number, but let's say like 30% annual tax savings, roughly. Exactly. Right? Correct. Yeah, it's a big number. Let me pick your brain a little bit here and your experience for both of you. 
there's companies that could be a fit for an ESOP and ones that might not be a fit. So it could be based on different criteria, revenue, number of employees, et cetera. Who in your experience would be a potential fit? You know, when we think about ideal ESOP candidates, we generally like or generally hope that a company has one, an owner that's looking to monetize their interest and sell to an ESOP. But, you know, certainly we want to be sure that that company itself has uh, reasonably predictable and stable cash flows. Um, oftentimes very challenging for ESOPs when you have um, unpredictable cash flows that in, in one year could be a million dollars and the next year could, you know, the business loses two, um, it, you know, loses two million. We can't have, you know, that, that sort of fluctuation in cash flows because it makes, one, it makes valuation very challenging and it also makes that, um, you know, the debt service could be a challenge as well because the company is in theory, you know, buying itself through raising uh, debt financing to pay to the owner um, on behalf of the ESOP. So, um, you know, predictable, stable cash flows, at least, you know, 20 to 30 employees, um, meaning we have uh, an adequate payroll base over which, you know, those ESOP shares over time get allocated because ESOPs do run into an issue or a challenge when you have too few people that are actually participating in an ESOP. Um, much like any qualified plan, there are certain requirements that need to be met um, so that there aren't one or two people that are benefiting more, so to speak, than, than others. So I'd like to have a, a, you know, a stable, healthy employee base um, and a strong management team, certainly. I think that's, that's obviously important. That's important for any seller, but um, certainly in an ESOP transaction, that's, um, that's critical. What have you seen, Joel? Chris covered it well, but I think one of the things you also have to consider is some diversity in the age group of your workforce. If you have everyone that's um, going to retire or looking to liquidate or cash in on the ESOP at the same time, that could create a hurdle for the company down the road. So um, you you want to make sure there's some balance in the age of the um, demographics of your employee base. Yeah. So from a cash flow standpoint, I think what I've come to hear and understand is typically ESOP businesses are a million in EBITDA or bigger. Is that a fair yeah, it, summary? Yeah, it, it, it is. It's costly to, to do a transaction. So you're going to have, um, of course, the upfront time, but then on an ongoing basis, you're going to need a record keeper. You're going to need an annual valuation. Um, you're going to add some complexities to your financial reporting, likely need the audited financial statement that Chris talked about before, at least a very you know, strong gap-based financial statement for the um, valuator to, to use. Um, so you kind of have to get to a point in that million dollars starts to make sense where there's enough value that you're going to get for the ESOP and therefore tax savings to cover some of the costs that are inherent in such a transaction. Right. And what industries are you seeing ESOPs used most commonly? We've seen them in all types of industries. We've seen manufacturing industries. They're very common in um, professional services, particularly engineering firms. They seem to work really well. Um, I think that it's um, it works well when your workforce understands, uh, when you have a workforce that understands the value of putting away for retirement and saving some money for retirement and would be motivated by having ownership and 
measuring results and seeing the the value of the company grow. I, I think it works if you have uh, an educated workforce, and that, that's oftentimes part of the the process is educating your employees about the ESOP plan, how it all fits together, and how what they do day to day can help increase the value of the company and ultimately the value of their own shares. Gotcha. Chris, what do you see as some of the biggest challenges facing business owners and how can they address them? And then Joel, same question's going to come to you. So don't go anywhere. (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) All right, Chris, why don't we start with you on that one? Biggest challenging, biggest challenge facing business owners, um, you know, particularly looking at uh, a succession. I'm I'm sure, um, you know, business owners are, uh, you know, obviously there's an emotion behind their their ownership interest. So giving up that control can be, um, yeah, I'm sure that emotional component is is a large challenge to get over, large hurdle. Um, but you know, in terms of in terms of challenging challenges, I think um it's like having ensuring that you're doing all of the right things up front, you know, whether it's um educating yourself and in all of these different, you know, options that business owners have in terms of succession and how to transition business. Uh, working with the the different advisors, uh, you know, ensuring that you have the team uh, behind you to help ensure that when the transaction ultimately does does happen and you're ready to pull the trigger and you know sign the sign the purchase agreement, um, that you are in fact ready and you know that you're not going to um, you know second guess yourself and second guess um, you know the deal price. Did I have the right advisors? Did you know? is is this the right price and you know i think it all comes back down to preparation um you know understanding how businesses are valued you know are, am i getting an annual valuation um you know am i monitoring these like adjustments to ebitda or, and earnings that we had talked about earlier in the podcast um you know do i have the right legal advisors do i have the right the right investment bank do i have the right accountants all of these things you know play into it and you know i think can help uh, you know, provide selling uh, business owners with some level of assurance that they're that they're doing the right thing. Gotcha. And how about for you, Joel? I never um, thought I would have said this uh, maybe ten years ago, but I, I think lately one of the biggest challenges I'm seeing in in transactions is just generational differences in the style of how the employees work. Um, oftentimes, you have the the founder or the the patriarch or matriarch of the the enterprise that's used to working 80 hours a week. And that's just how business gets done. And if their um, successor, whether it be a, a, a child or, you know, a, a manager coming up through the ranks may not be willing to put that same type of uh, dedication that they had into the, the business. And quite frankly, maybe they don't need to work the 80 hours a week either because they can take advantage of technology and other resources and, and things like that. But it, oftentimes it's bridging that gap of just the generational differences between the the founder or, or the, the patriarch or matriarch and the successor. And I think that that um, getting those done and getting those on the table early and, and making sure that um, there's trust between the, the folks there um, ultimately can overcome that. But having that trust level up front is, is most important. Yeah, absolutely. Trust is super important. Guys, we've spent so much good quality time together today. I want to start to wind down. And as I ask all my 
guests on the show, if there's a favorite quote that inspires you that you'd like to share. Chris, let me let me ask you first if you have one. Yeah, Lori, you put me on the spot and um, I did I did think about this uh, a little bit, but um, something, you know, a quote that I that I always that I always like. And it's something that, um, you know, I try and instill in, you know, in my kids um, even. And I'm going to read it. It's uh, 10 things that require zero talent. Being on time, work ethic, effort, energy, body language, passion doing extra being prepared being coachable and attitude and i think you know those are those are things that you know i i wish i could adhere to on a daily basis and i think that's something that you know it helps me uh, you know hopefully inspire my kids so that's that's one thing that i was thinking about um and i think i i was thinking about that recently because i i coach my son's uh fifth grade basketball team. And, you know, those are the sort some of the values that me and some of the other coaches are trying to instill in those boys. So I um, love it. I yeah. love it. That's great. Joel, what about for you? I think from a business standpoint, it, and particularly it lines up with what we're talking about here is, is really treating your business like it's for sale every day. And, and even though it's not, it, as long as you're treating it like it's that getting it ready, like that Apple store that Chris previously talked about, making sure you um, everything's polished off, you have the agreements in place, you have when people come in, it's a nice storefront, you have uh, customer diversity, um, and and just really um, showcasing uh, your talents every day, and, and you're always on stage. So whether you're for sale or not, just try to treat every day as if, if your business is for sale, and uh, it, it'll help you add value to um, your ongoing uh, journey along the way. I love it. If people want to get in touch with you both, what's a great way to reach out and connect? Our phone number, Chris and I's both, is 814-536-7864. And email is jvalentine at wessel, W-E-S-S-E-L-C-P-A.com. And Chris, if you want to give your email. Yeah, uh, certainly. Uh, my email address is cweir at wesselcpa.com. Uh, you could also find us, you know, obviously through our email or through our website. Um, both Joel and I are on there, along with um, really all of the other partners and team members that we have at our firm across our offices throughout Western PA. So, yeah, appreciate that, Lori. Of course, both of you. Thank you so much for being with me on Succession Stories today. It was a really insightful conversation. and I appreciate both of you so much. Thank you for having us, Lori. Thanks, Lori. And to our listeners, thank you for all of your support. Catch Succession Stories on your favorite podcast player or on YouTube and subscribe to the show. If you want to maximize the value of your business and plan for future transition, reach out to me for a complimentary assessment at meetlauriebarkman.com. Join me next time for more insights from transition to transaction. My objective is for you to have a lucrative and successful succession. 
If you want to understand the value of your company today, that's a great place to start. The sooner you understand what creates value and what detracts from it, the more time you'll have to close the gap if there is one. Hundreds of business owners have taken my complimentary business assessment. As a first step, schedule a call with me by visiting meetlauriebarkman.com. That's meetlauriebarkman.com.